0: Coming to you from the heart of Thomas Jefferson's Academical Village, this is Academical, the official podcast of the Virginia Policy Review. VPR is staffed by Master of Public Policy students at the Frank Patton School of Leadership and Public Policy at the University of Virginia. I'm your host, Joshua Margulies. Welcome to Academical. In this episode, VPR's Editor-in-Chief Jack DiMatteo sits down with Ned Price, director of policy and communications at National Security Action. Previously, Price worked as an analyst at the Central Intelligence Agency. He was brought on to the National Security Council under President Obama before briefly returning to the CIA under President Trump. The conversation touches on all of this and more. Enjoy.
1: Hello, I'm Jack DiMatteo, Editor-in-Chief of the Virginia Policy Review. Very lucky to be joined today by Ned Price, Director of Policy Communications for National Security Action. Ned, thank you so much for being here. Happy to do it. Great. Um, so we'll uh, dive right in and, and have the chance to ask Ned some questions about his time uh, in the Obama administration and the work he's doing now. Um, and some of that work from the Obama administration was described in the book West Wingers, uh, which came out just this past year and compiled the stories of people who served in different roles throughout the Obama administration. Uh, in the chapter you wrote to the book for the book, you uh, talked about what motivated your decision to serve our nation in the CIA after you graduated from Georgetown. I was wondering if you could describe that a little bit.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I was one of those people, um, some may describe us as nerds, but who uh, went through high school and perhaps even before knowing that I wanted to um, go into the foreign policy realm, um, was always interested in the world beyond our shores, um, whether that was travel, whether that was study, um, whether that was following current events. Um, and it just so happened uh, that uh, two weeks into my freshman year um, at Georgetown, just a couple miles from here, um, it was 9-11. Uh, and so obviously you know, freshman year, it's a, it's a, it can be a, a jarring time even in the best of circumstances, away from your family, away from your friends for the first time. But um, to have that experience um, layered on top of it um, and to, you know, see the Pentagon um, burn and later smolder um, from the top of uh, one of the freshman dorms, um, you know, it's a it's a, a jarring experience um, and uh, something that cemented in my mind that not only did I want to go in the foreign policy realm and the national security realm, but I wanted to do it um, uh, for uh, our government um, and I wanted to pursue a path of public service. Um, I, Those four years went by, that um, feeling uh, didn't change. It was only uh, steeled, uh, in fact. Um, And of course, in uh, 2004, 2005, when I was uh, a senior in college and and preparing to graduate, um, I was fortunate um, that our uh, intelligence community was increasing its ranks of, uh, of both analysts and operations officers. Um, and I applied to be a counterterrorism analyst um, and was fortunate enough to uh, make it through the long um, and uh, arduous process um, and to start at the agency in 2006, uh, focusing on Al-Qaeda. Yeah,
1: Yeah. And, and so with the CIA and your work as an analyst, um, you obviously dealt with terrorist groups, and I'm curious, to the extent that you're able to talk about it, how those years and the work you did informed your thinking about these kind of thorny policy issues related to terrorism that we continue to debate today.
2: Yeah. Um, the terror – the threat from terrorism has uh, evolved uh, markedly over the years. When I first started, um, we were concerned about um, a reconstituted al Qaeda, an al Qaeda that had reconstituted itself uh, in the border region between uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan. Um, and that was my focus uh, for the first uh, several years I spent at, at the agency. Um, but uh, my focus shifted, uh, as did the Al Qaeda threat, um, uh, due to uh, some of the uh, fantastic work of the United States and our partners. Um, Al Qaeda was uh, put under immense pressure, um, uh, both in that region and other regions. Um, but we found uh, that that rather than um, uh, that that rather than uh, diminish and and, um, uh, and and wither away. Um, Al-Qaeda was able to um, spread through uh, franchises, and these franchises sprouted in places like Yemen and Somalia and West Africa and North Africa and Southeast Asia, uh, among other places. And so um, from there, I uh, came to focus on uh, some of these so-called affiliates, um, and I spent the bulk of my time from there on uh, focusing on uh, Al-Qaeda in uh, Yemen and Somalia. And today, um, in the in the years since then, uh, the threat has become Um, even more uh, uh, diverse Um, in that the threat we face as Americans is primarily no longer that of a centrally directed attack, that of an attack uh, planned uh, and Uh, orchestrated and directed from uh, an Al-Qaeda or from an ISIS, uh, but from those who are inspired by an ideology. Um, And fighting and combating an ideology is much different uh, than taking on uh, a terrorist group comprised of people and physical resources. Uh, And I think that is um, something we still struggle with, is, is how to combat the ideas um, that fuel uh, the hatred and fuel the violence um, that uh, we've continued to see in some of these uh, homegrown uh, attacks in the United States that Europe has been plagued by, um, all the while continuing to ensure that groups like uh, ISIS, groups like al Qaeda, um, and its various manifestations are uh, under the enduring pressure, pressure necessary uh, to ensure that they're not able to again reconstitute and to uh, form the threat that they once posed.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned this evolution of the the terrorist threat the United States faced, and you probably saw that over the course of your time uh, from the Bush administration to the Obama administration, and in the Obama administration you went on loan from the CIA uh, and became special assistant to President Obama, uh, spokesperson, senior director of the National Security Council. Um, speaking now more broadly, what do you consider to be the greatest foreign policy, national security successes from your time in the administration? Uh, and to kind of build off that, in what ways, if any, do you think those successes have been threatened by the current administration? Oh.
2: There, There are a number uh, that I could speak to and some really amazing um, uh, accomplishments and policy shifts um, that I – Uh, certainly witnessed and and played a small role in. Uh, You know, the Iran deal comes to mind, the opening with Cuba uh, comes to mind, but I think the the thing that I'm personally proudest of um, is something that um, uh, uh, perhaps mo- may not be an obvious choice, and I, and I think that is um, the, the increasing transparency uh, with which uh, the Obama Administration um, confronted uh, threats of terrorism, confronted broader national uh, security threats. Um, when I started at CIA in 2006, um, there was a, um, uh, an effort to combat Al-Qaeda around the world uh, that was uh, largely shrouded in secrecy. Uh, by the time I left the Obama administration, by, t- by the time I left the, the White House in, in 2017, um, the U.S. military was announcing all of its airstrikes in, in, in key theaters. Uh, the administration had put out for the first time the number of Uh, uh, lethal uh, strikes. Um, It had taken uh, from 2009 until 2016 uh, in in certain conflict theaters around the globe. It had declassified for the first time the number of uh, both combatants and non-combatants killed um, in those operations. President Obama himself um, articulated the policy guidance under which um, uh, the United States government undertook uh, drone strikes, lethal operations, capture operations for the first time, giving the American people the the most insight they've ever had uh, into um, uh, what guides the United States prosecution um, of uh, the war on terrorism, the limits uh, that are there, the authorities uh, that are there, and, and I think again, giving meaning um, and paying homage to this idea of the consent of the governed. Um, for too long, I think the American people um, uh, weren't Um, given an opportunity uh, to give consent because uh, there was uh, little idea as to what uh, some of these strategies and tactics entailed. Uh, I think President Obama um, articulated uh, a lot of that while still of course, preserving um, operational uh, flexibility uh, and um, protecting sources and methods. Uh, I I think uh, the Trump administration has kept some of that uh, in play, um, uh, but not, I think, as much as we'd like. Uh, the military now is – Um, uh, walked back its policy somewhat. The administration has blown through deadlines um, to uh, disclose, per per, uh, existing executive orders, um, uh, information about um, counterterrorism operations. Uh, But the general uh, and broad infrastructure and architecture that the Obama administration placed around um, uh, these tactics and tools uh, largely uh, remains in place, and I think that's to our tremendous benefit.
1: Absolutely. Um, so I guess uh, on the opposite side of my, my previous question, are th- are there specific foreign policy initiatives from the Trump administration thus far that you think are praiseworthy uh, or aligned with how you would approach the given issue?
2: Well, I, I think it's um, it, it's a, it's impossible uh, to um, give any sort of credit uh, process-wise uh, or uh, policy-wise. But but I have to say that um, you know. President Trump, um, uh, despite, you know, bluster and, and bravado, especially in the campaign context, um, you know, I think he he has been um, willing, um, belatedly in some cases, but willing um, to uh, uh, try diplomacy, um, to try diplomacy with North Korea, uh, more recently to try diplomacy uh, in the Afghan context, um, authorizing uh, U.S. representatives to sit down with the Taliban. Um, uh, and you know I think the uh, situation in Afghanistan, um, it seems like there's been a great deal of progress there, um, and uh, it would be to the credit of the men and women of the State Department, um, to the credit of the men and women of the uh, National Security Council staff, um, if, uh, and, and the Defense Department, if there is to be um, a, a deal reached. Um, between the Afghan government and the Taliban um, that preserves the hard-won gains um, uh, of uh, the United States, our Afghan partners, and others uh, over the past 17 years that preserves um, the uh, uh, advancements in in human rights and civil liberties for the Afghan people, including women and girls, um, and that uh, leads to a diminution of uh, bloodshed and and violence. Uh, We're not there yet, but um, you know, we're, we're as close as, as we've seen it um, to date, and to be sure, much of that has been done on the back of um, President Bush's policies, of President Obama's policies. Um, but it, I think it will be to this administration's credit if they're able to, to seal the deal there.
1: Absolutely, and and to continue off that point specifically, uh, so far the Taliban has been resistant to negotiating directly with the Afghan government. Do you think a sustainable solution is possible without a dialogue directly between the Taliban? No, and the there government? there has
2: to be direct dialogue between the Taliban and the Afghan government. If um, we are to withdraw our forces in large numbers as uh, most iterations of this plan envision. Um, there has to be some degree of comedy between the Afghan government and the Taliban. Uh, the fact that they 're not willing to negotiate directly yet i think is is probably the biggest hang up here um, uh, uh, and, and obviously that 's where you need an American leadership role uh, and an American uh, interlocutor who has. Uh, obviously a close relationship with the Afghan Government, but um, has been willing and able to sit down with uh, Taliban interlocutors uh, to to broker um, those introductions and to broker and open that opportunity for the parties to sit down together uh, to try and reach uh, uh, an agreement that uh, is durable, um, but that also uh, protects the gains the Afghan people have achieved over the past 17 years.
1: Absolutely. Um, So I'll I'll pick back up on your own story, Uh, moving from the end of the Obama administration into the Trump administration. You returned to the CIA um, to continue to to serve in this administration, but uh, you resigned uh, weeks into the Trump administration, and you published a Washington Post op-ed describing why you felt compelled to make that difficult decision. Um, And in the months since, others have uh, made the same choice, from Special Presidential Envoy Brett McGurk uh, in the Afghan region to Defense Secretary James Mattis. And wondering if you could describe some of the factors, as you laid out in that op ed, that um, you took into account making a decision that, um, you know, describing how your whole life you imagined yourself in public service, um, what ultimately made you reach a point where you felt like you could no longer serve in good faith?
2: Yeah, I um, you know I witnessed uh, the 2016 election from an interesting vantage point. As as you mentioned before, I was detailed from the CIA to the National Security Council, um, where I, where my office at the time was in the West Wing, and um, uh, it was the closest I've um, you know ever been to a. Uh, political um, power center. I'd spent all of my career um, uh, at the agency, where um, it is quite rightly uh, insulated from partisan politics. Um, But as I watched uh, from um, that perch uh, as the campaign unfolded, uh, you know, I saw one of the two nominees um, in uh, the presidential debates casually dismiss Uh, the high-confidence findings of the U.S. intelligence community. I saw the uh, then-president-elect at the time uh, compare uh, intelligence and law enforcement uh, 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 institutions uh, and officials to uh, the Nazis, to the Gestapo. Um, On the first – on his first full day in office, um, President Trump uh, traveled to CIA headquarters um, where he stood in front of uh, the CIA's memorial wall, which commemorates all of those officers who uh, gave their lives um, uh, uh, in the line of uh, service. Um, and uh, at, at the time, there were 117 stars on the wall, um, including, you know, my, my mentor um, who was killed in, in Afghanistan in, in 2009. Um, and all I could think as I was sort of watching um, that uh, performance is that um, not only was he was the then president um, being overtly um, political and partisan and crass, um, uh, standing in front of the memorial wall, but he was actually you know, blocking uh, the star um, uh, engraved for uh, someone who meant a, a great deal to me and, and for those who meant, uh, uh, for others who meant a great deal to, to many of my colleagues. Um, uh, and so um, you know, there was tremendous uh, anger um uh, on my part, and then um, the final straw for me was uh, shortly into the Trump administration when President Trump put forward um, his first national security memorandum, naming uh, his then senior counselor Steve Bannon to the National Security Council. Um, and for me, it was a culmination of the fact uh, that this was a candidate, a president-elect, and then a president. Um, who didn't seem to be all that interested um, in the sort of unvarnished and uh, unbiased analysis, that would be the bread and butter of my work um, if I were to have continued at uh, the CIA. Um, He was willing to casually cast aside um, even the highest confidence confidence findings. Uh, He was willing to install um, political operatives, um, uh, including a political operative in this case who had cut his teeth in the white nationalist movement. Um, uh, and he was a president who seemed, um, uh, ideological, uh, rather than pragmatic. Um, and so I thought, um, that rather than serve in that capacity, um, I could, um, uh, try and influence, um, Uh, change from the outside Um, and I could uh, take a break from government knowing that I always wanted to return um, and try and um, uh, affect that change from, uh, from a different vantage point.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and and you've done that in a number of capacities in media, in academia, and uh, specifically, I wanted to focus on your role as director of policy and communications for National Security Action, which is a new group started um, after the Obama administration during the Trump administration. I'm wondering if, uh, for people who are unfamiliar, if you can describe the mission of National Security Action and the work you do uh, with the organization. Yeah,
2: National Security Action came together um, last year, um, and uh, we brought together for the first time. Um, preeminent uh, uh, experts in the field of national security. Many of them were practitioners um, uh, in the previous administration uh, or before that in some cases. Uh, Some are renowned experts, Um, with the idea being that President Trump uh, has put us on uh, an incredibly dangerous path, Um, and it's – the danger of that path is widely recognized. uh, within the national security um, uh, community, uh, and this was uh, and is a group of people who um, are willing to be resources um, to those who are um, uh, who are working to put a check um, on. Uh, that path are those who are uh, now in the context of um, our upcoming presidential elections uh, seeking to replace President Trump um, and so what we do uh, we work on a, on, on a few different fronts. Um, we work closely with Congress on uh, now oversight initiatives, especially in the House of Representatives, uh, where Democrats uh, have have the majority now, of course, um, but uh, supporting um, uh, representative senators and their staffs. Uh, in their efforts to hold this uh, administration to account. Um, We – in the midterms last year and and, uh, in the upcoming 2020 elections – served as a resource for uh, candidates uh, who were looking for background um, uh, on foreign policy and national security issues, uh, who wanted to – who wanted our ideas on how to think about them and how to talk about them and how to approach them uh, substantively. Uh, with the idea that um, uh, sound uh, national security policy um, uh, would uh, – uh, the sort of rising tide in this arena would, would lift all boats uh, within the um, uh, broader progressive movement. Um, we'll be very focused um, on uh, policy initiatives in the context of uh, 2020 and even beyond. Um, and we're doing some thinking around um, issues that will sure, – will be sure to be – Uh, on the front burner uh, in 2021 when uh, at least we hope um, there will be a a new administration uh, and there will be a lot of damage to undo. um, And much of our uh, efforts over the next uh, uh, year and a half or so will be focused on um, how we can put those plans into place and how we can be ready uh, to hit the ground running um, when uh, there's, there's a new administration in 2021.
1: Yeah, and, and to, to go off that, we are early in the campaign, of course, and you know, policy seems to be at kind of a high level at this point. Um, but foreign policy, at least thus far, hasn't seemed to be a central focus of the Democratic candidate's message. Um, do you think that any particular foreign policy issues will become more important over the course of the campaign? Uh, and if so, what do you think are some of the key principles that you'd hope to see from Democratic candidates in this election?
2: Yeah, um, I should say that uh, in the Trump presidency, uh, you know what what is the focus today may not be the focus tomorrow, and and uh, it's impossible to say where we'll be um, as we approach twenty twenty four and policy wise. Um, uh, but I think you know we have uh, at least a, a broad peek at, at what. Uh, some of these issues will be China, of course, will be a big one. Afghanistan, Syria, uh, the forever wars um, will will um, be prominent. Uh, this idea of climate change, uh, including climate change as a threat to our national security, not to mention our our uh, broader uh, future. Emerging technologies, uh, cyber, artificial intelligence uh, will of course um, be an issue too. Um, but then the the um, uh retreat of democracy uh, in in parts of the world um, uh, and the idea um, uh, we hope and, and are working to, to stress uh, that as a party Democrats can uh, stand for, the American ideals that have, uh, at least since the end of World War II, uh, consistently guided our foreign policy its standing up for um, our values, uh, both at home um, uh, and around the world. That's the freedom of the press, freedom of expression, uh, freedom of religion, um, other basic civil rights and and human rights um, around the world. That's something that uh, has been uh, almost entirely missing from uh, foreign policy under the Trump administration. and it's never before have we seen uh, a foreign policy that is uh, transactional uh, in this way. Uh, it may play well uh, to the president's political base, uh, but it does tremendous uh, harm and potentially even long-term damage uh, to America's um, – uh, not only our image around the globe, but also our ability um, uh, to uh, carry out what is undeniably um, in both our national interest uh, and the common interest. And I think um, uh, in many cases, our national interests uh, o- uh, intersect and overlap uh, with the common interest, um, which is why uh, you know we especially need to, to be engaged. Um, uh, uh, we need to be active um, on uh, the global stage, um, galvanizing others to action, leading the way, uh, as America has always done, um, but uh, in a way which uh, has not been done during this administration.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and I know you know you, you make this point that this administration is a break not just from the one that preceded it, but a long line of of American presidents. Um, and of course, you started in a Republican administration in the CIA un, under President Bush, um, but. That President Bush's father, President George H.W. Bush, is also someone I know uh, you've had a connection with uh, being from Texas. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about his legacy uh, and the impact it had on you and, and kind of what that shows about how a Republican president or Democratic president upheld certain values and, and how that might contrast with our current moment.
2: Yeah. Um, you know, President George H.W. Bush, I think, is um, uh, his foreign policy legacy uh, has. Um, always been underappreciated. um he 's one of the, i think the uh, he was one of the great statesmen um of uh of the last uh half century um uh, and for me um as someone who uh, uh you know uh, is is a is a young man i i always looked up to um, him and his legacy, the way in which he ushered in uh, the end of the Cold War, that he guided um, uh, the United States in the in the post Cold War era, um, the the idea um, that he put forward um, that there was a, uh, a you know a new world order in which um, America um, had the ability and had the uh, requirement um, to take up the mantle um, and to to lead. Um, uh, collectively, um, and to lead in this uh, in this new environment, um, uh, you know I admired him, um, uh, having learned about his uh, legacy when he was uh, CIA director, um, uh, and you know I think subsequent presidents, um, uh, of course his his son, but President Clinton, uh, his successor, and President Obama too, uh, were heavily influenced um, by the way uh, George H. W. Bush. Uh, managed uh, the international political system, uh, the way in which uh, he approached challenges uh, leveraging the tools of uh, the international system um, that were there to keep the peace and that were there to add legitimacy uh, and effectiveness uh, to um, our actions uh, around the world. Um, And I think uh, the way in which he did that um, was truly admirable um, and, uh, I think, emblematic um, of the way not only uh, Republican presidents um, uh, I can and should approach these problems, but also it says uh, there are lessons there for, uh, for all presidents. And I know President Obama, uh, too, was greatly uh, influenced by George W. Bush.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So as we wind down our last few minutes here, a couple other questions. Um, You know, the Batten School is a school of leadership and public policy, uh, and I'm sure it'd be meaningful to our students to hear a little bit about how your MPP from the Kennedy School at Harvard has influenced your career subsequently.
2: Yeah, it, for me it was a, a fantastic um experience. It exposed me to um uh I think first and foremost uh, a group of people who um are dedicated to public service uh and to um uh, in the case of the Kennedy school upholding the the uh, the, the legacy of uh, President Kennedy and public service, um, and serving um, uh, our your your country in this case, the United States. Um, I, I, the people I met um, during my time at the Kennedy School um, remain uh, some of my uh, closest friends, but they also remain uh, close colleagues um, uh, throughout uh, DC. Um, many have taken up posts uh, in. Uh, uh, local governments and uh, NGOs and nonprofits and foundations um, around the country, and I, I still keep in touch with many of them uh, through that work as well. So um, I think the 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 virtue of policy schools uh, like the Batten School, like the Kennedy School, um, is that they instill um, graduates with a common set of values, and, and often those common set of values um, will um, lead. Uh, uh, will lead to, uh, down a similar path, uh, and you keep running into the same people um, uh, in different roles, um, but knowing that everyone is uh, striving um, to do uh, as much good in the world as he possibly can.
1: Yeah, and, and along those lines, uh, if you could just leave us with a final thought, those of us who want to pursue careers in public service, what
2: uh, advice would you offer, any message you'd like to share? Uh, I think there's never a bad time for public service. I think this is an especially good time uh, for public service, Uh, and I know I uh – It may may sound ironic that uh, that's coming from me, someone who left uh, public service a a year and a half ago, but um, uh, every time I talk to people um, who are interested in pursuing a career in government, um, I tell them to go for it. There's no more rewarding uh, career path. Uh, There is uh, no uh, career opportunity that uh, gives you the same sense of mission and accomplishment uh, and satisfaction, uh, I think, as Um, Serving your country um, in in such an important way, Uh, and I uh, too, um, when the uh, when the coast is clear, do hope to uh, rejoin the ranks of uh, of of government servants uh, because it's something I've I've missed uh, tremendously. Great. Well, Ned, thank you so much uh,
1: for being with us today. Really appreciate it, and appreciate these messages for the Batten School and the broader community who will be listening and, and reading this.
0: Thanks, Jack. You can follow VPR on Twitter at v a review and on Facebook and LinkedIn at Virginia Policy Review. If you would like to contribute to our print publication, please visit us at virginiapolicyreview.org. Submissions for our spring 2019 issue are now open. We will accept submissions on a rolling basis until March 29th, 2019. Lastly, VPR will yet again be hosting our National Journal Conference. The 2019 conference will be held here in Charlottesville on March 30th, 2019. Registration is still open. More details can be found on our website. Links for the conference and journal submissions can also be found in the show notes to this episode. Editing for this episode was done by yours truly. Our music is provided by Blue Dot Sessions. I'm your host, Joshua Margulies. Until next time, be excellent to each other.